Good morning. I missed you guys. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. Uh, I was at uh, the Southern Psychiatric Association one weekend, and then I was at the American Association of Christian Counselors uh, in uh, Nashville, the World Convention, a couple of weekends ago, where I had the privilege to speak to about 450 Christian counselors um, from around the the country, and uh, it was very well received. We did a program on the adolescent brain and addictions, and um, and they really enjoyed that program. And then last weekend, I was doing a program in a series in in, in Birmingham and uh, at the church there, and, and it went very well also. So, but I'm glad to be back. I'm back here for a while now. So, and uh, another announcement: our you know the book could it be this simple? Uh, our ministry has put out an audio version, and all the proceeds to this version goes to the ministry. So, and this is available on Amazon.com as well for anybody who might want the audio version. All right, let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We pray that you will join us as our minds search and our hearts search for you, that we might experience the unity of love that comes as we come into your presence. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number five in our uh, quarterly, the Gospel in Galatians. And the lesson title this week is Old Testament Faith. Somebody read the memory verse for us, Galatians 3.13, please. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What do you think that means? What does it mean to be cursed by God? My, my question is, does it say that he is cursed by God? Okay. Who is he cursed? Okay, he became a curse for us. But, That's right. Okay, so what does it mean he became a curse? Accused. He was accused. Accused. Well, let's read paragraphs one through three. The lesson may try to give us some insights here. It says, a little boy made a little boat, all painted and fixed up beautifully. One day someone stole his boat and he was distressed. And passing a pawn shop one day, he saw the, his boat. Happily, he ran into the pawnbroker and said, that is my little boat. No, said the pawnbroker, it's mine, for I bought it. Yes, said the boy, but it's mine because I made it. Well, said the pawnbroker, if you will pay me two dollars, then you can have it. That was a lot of money for the boy, who did not have a penny. Anyway, he resolved to have it, so he cut grass, did chores all kinds of all kinds, and soon had his money. He ran down uh, to the shop and said, I want my boat. He paid the money and received his boat. He took the boat up in his arms and hugged and kissed it and said, You dear little boat, I love you. You are mine. You are twice mine. I made you, and now I have bought you. So it is with us. We are, in a sense, twice the Lord's. He created us, and we uh, got into the devil's pawn shop. Then Jesus came and bought us uh, at an awful cost, not silver and gold, but his precious blood. We are the Lord's by creation and redemption. What are your thoughts? Well, I guess the first question, what are the strengths of this story? What are the strengths of this story? The love of the boy for his boat. The love of the boy for his boat, for the love of God, for his creation. Okay, that's a strength. God loves his creation. Alrighty, what else? Did God build us? Yeah, okay, so there's a point there. He built his boat, God built us. Okay. Uh, Was the human race stolen by deception? Yes. Okay, so the human race was stolen, so there was deception and theft involved. Uh, Okay, that's good. Um, did God redeem us at great cost to himself? Okay, that's true too. All those things. So, the, so there's elements here that, 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 are, that are strengths. What are the weaknesses of this story? The boat has, had no choice. Okay, the boat had no choice. Okay. 
that human, the human race had a choice. Adam and Eve had a choice. Now, how about you and I, though? Do we have a choice? Mm-hmm. No, we were both. Let me make that, make, make that a little more clear. Do we have a choice in regard to whether we were sinners or not? No. No. No, no we only have a choice in regard to whether we will accept salvation or not. But we don't have a choice of whether we were born in sin or not born in sin. That wasn't our choice. I think we didn't get that one. But Adam and Eve had that choice. Yes. Yeah. My question is, did, the, did God pay a price to the devil to redeem us? Well, that's the next, that's another weakness, is the plan of salvation. Um, was the plan of salvation a bartering with the devil? No. Were we in the devil's pawn shop and the Lord paid his blood to the devil to get us out? Because the, the story says we were, in, you know, we're in the devil's pawn shop. Yes. No, the pawn shop isn't necessarily the devil. The devil is whoever stole the little the boat from the little boy and okay. pawned it to the pawn shop. Okay, but the, the, the story said the pawn shop. So, um, yeah. But either way, um, the devil stole. In this case, uh, the analogy would be the devil did steal us. Uh, are we in the devil's pawn shop? Are we? Did the price of our redemption get paid to the devil? That's what the devil wants to make it believe. That's uh, C.S. Lewis in you know in. Um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe almost alludes to that fact, if you remember when the, the, uh, the White Witch uh, stole or, or, or got the, uh, Ed, was it Edmund? Yeah, Edmund and the, uh, was, uh, was a captive of the White Witch and Aslam uh, gave his life to the White Witch and the White Witch stabbed and killed Aslan in order to, uh, in order to free the boy. So, you know, C.S. Lewis alluded to that idea that maybe the blood was paid to the to the devil who held held humanity is that is that I think that's a weakness in the story I don't think that's what happened how about another weakness in the story the plan of salvation was the plan of salvation a purchase or payment plan of some legal debt could the story cause misunderstanding in regard to what was necessary for our redemption you know when we said when we said it's true that God paid a high price for our salvation that's not the same thing as saying he paid a price to the devil or that he paid a legal price. Well, keep in mind, because if we get to it, it's at the end of, this, end of the lesson, we wrap up with the question, well, what was the purchase price? What was necessary to be paid in order to, to, to save mankind? So be thinking on that as we go through the lesson today. Sunday's lesson, it says in the top there, it says uh, Galatians 3, 1 through 5, uh, summarize, summarize below what Paul is saying to the Galatians. In what sense could uh, we be in danger of falling into the same spiritual pitfalls? And so somebody read for us, and it, then it says, um, of starting out right and falling into legalism. Somebody read for us Galatians 1, 3, 1 through 5. Galatians 3, 1 through 5. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And so the the lesson asks, in what sense could we be in danger of falling into the same spiritual pitfall of starting out right and then falling into legalism. How could we be in that danger? And so the first question to ask is, what is legalism? Being concerned with your 
legal standing before God. Okay, she said legalism is being concerned with your legal standing before God. Yes. It's also thinking a mindset where we think that that is God's emphasis. A mind- that in this great controversy, the way that God is working to correct it is in a legal kind of a way. Okay, she said, did she said that uh, legalism is, is believing that God is approaching this with a legal mindset, trying to provide legal solutions. Um, you guys are so far ahead of the power curve. You know, I, I looked up a tr- uh, in, on the internet a definition of legalism, and, and this is a common definition in Wikipedia of legalism. It says, legalism refers to any doctrine which states salvation comes strictly from adherence to the law. It can be thought of as works-based religion. Groups in the New Testament said to be falling into the category include the Pharisees, Sadducees, Scribes, Judaizers, and Nicolaitans. Um, That's a traditional definition of legalism, a works-based theology. But you guys didn't go there. No, you guys, you said, say it again, Margaret? Being concerned with your legal standing before God. So legalism is being concerned with the legal standing before God. And Carla said... Uh, thinking of God as having a legal preoccupation in the salvation process. What do you think? Both of those or the... the all of it. All of it's correct. Okay. Um, okay. I like it too, because what you've done is you've expanded it. Do you understand traditionally, traditionally the view is that it's a works-based... Legalism is humankind trying to... Um, cause a achievement of legal outcomes. Humankind doing works to make some type of a legal outcome. But you guys have expanded it to say legalism also includes God doing various works to achieve a legal outcome. Do you understand that that you guys are are really um, you know way off the reservation now? <laughs> You guys would. You guys are flying in the face of tradition. You know, most of Christianity believes that that's true. That salvation is God doing something to to generate legal outcomes. Wow, you guys are radicals, man. Don't both definitions um, derive from the same the same root, where the the you know God's law was broken, and therefore either we have to get back into adherence with that law or he has to you know perform some legal gymnastics to to make it acceptable for us. make a loophole right yeah yeah no that's i, I agree yeah. first paragraph in, in sunday's lesson it says several modern tradition tra- several modern translations have tried to capture the sense of paul's words in verse 1 about foolish galatians the actual word paul uses in greek is even stronger than that uh, the word, which I don't really know how to say in Greek, uh, the word, uh, and it, it comes from the, the word for mind, noise, literally means mindless. The Galatians were not thinking. Hmm. The Galatians were not thinking. Hmm. Paul does not stop there. He says that because they are acting so foolishly, he wonders if some magician casts a spell on them. Who bewitched you? His choice of words here may even suggest the ultimate source behind their condition, which is the devil. So, first off, he's, he's really hitting them up for having a thoughtless religion, a mindless religion, a religion in which you go through protocols, actions, ceremonies, whatever, but you don't think about it. You don't have your mind engaged. 
We don't have any problems like that in religion today, do we? No, I think this is the big trouble that we suffer with, regardless of denomination or religion, is that much of religion actually teaches the virtue. Things like this. Well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We don't ask any questions. Or if you have faith, you don't, you don't need any evidence, you don't need to think. Uh, it's virtuous to believe without thinking. It's almost, it's taught as a virtue. You're more spiritual, you're more righteous if you turn your brain off. And this is why a lot of thinking people don't go to church. I have patients in my office all the time say, I, I believe in God, but I don't go to church. Why don't you go to church? Well, you're not allowed to think at church. Really? I have people say this in my office. You ever heard somebody say this? Yeah. Paul is telling the Galatians, that's wrong. You need to think. You need to think at church. Um, then it talks about, if you notice the last sentence, that, that who has bewitched you. And the lesson, of course, is suggesting that the devil's behind such such, action, such actions to bewitch us. And I wanted to ask you guys questions. What specific actions through history, from the time of Adam and Eve's fall until today, has the devil taken to try to obstruct God's plan of salvation? From the moment of the fall till today, Satan has taken specific actions to try to stop God's plan. Now, God has already defeated some of them. Some of them are still at play. Can we identify any of those? Well, he kept trying to to kill, get all the righteous to be wicked, so there wouldn't be a righteous line for Christ to come through. See, we we all agree that once man fell into sin, man couldn't be saved unless Christ came, right? Right. So Satan's first strategy, as, as Margaret says, is to try to get every human being to close their hearts to God. Because would God force a woman against her will to be the vessel through whom Christ became incarnate? God wouldn't force a woman to that. She had to be willing. She had to be voluntary. And so his first strategy was to to get every human being closed against God. At one point in human history, there was only eight people on the whole planet still working with God. I mean, his strategy was almost coming to a to a fruition. Yes. Well, yeah, one and and yeah. And he talked to his family to go with him. Yeah, so it got very narrow at one point, didn't it? Yeah. So that's one strategy. And then another strategy, he he tried to destroy God's helpers in the Old Testament. He tried to seduce them into all types of um, idolatry, uh, uh, fornication, sexual fertility rights. He tried to get them so twisted on the truth about God that, that... that he could again close the hearts because he knew now he didn't have to get the whole world. He just had to get this smaller group closed off. And, and of course, what happened? God several times intervened to allow them to go into captivity. For what purpose? To punish? To save them. It was, it was actually to save them. Yes, a, a remnant would be saved through that. And then, how about after Jesus was born as an infant? This is really, really telling information here if you're thinking. You've got your thinking cap on. What did what did the devil through Herod try to do? Yeah, and he killed a whole bunch of babies, but his target, of course, was baby Jesus. Now think this through. After Jesus' birth, is it not true? We now have God incarnate on earth. Yes. Is this true? Is it true that he's the sinless son of God? Yes. Yes. Okay. So think this through. If the problem is simply that we owe a legal debt, of the shedding blood of the innocent Son of God to pay that debt, 
well, then what's the problem with Herod killing baby Jesus? We've got the innocent blood of the son shed for us. It's, the payment is made. deal is done. See, Satan knew that if he could kill Jesus as an infant, the plan of salvation is stopped. We can't be saved still. But if it's a legal payment, well, that should have been enough. What would have been missing? Why would we not have been able to be saved had Herod succeeded in killing baby Jesus? Yes. If the blood of Jesus is, is required as a payment yeah. 4,000 years after sin was introduced, then why wasn't that done right away when sin was introduced in the Garden of Eden? If that is the requirement, the payment, that payment could have, made, 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 could have been made in the Garden of Eden. You just know why it took so long. Yeah. Okay. If, if payment was always required, why did it take four millennia? Well, because Jesus wasn't human. He didn't have any human blood to shed in the Garden of Eden. He could have become a human. Can't yeah. kill God, though. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you mean he could have become human at that point. Could have been the first child born. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yes. Where you were asking, though, I think you were looking for a choice. There was no choice if he would have been killed as a baby. Uh, no choice on whose part? Jesus. Jesus. Well, okay. He chose to become incarnate. He, he had not developed. Baby, you wonder what his brain was like. Yeah. Okay, so now, so now, so now you're making a good distinction. He, as a divine creator in heaven, he chose to become incarnate, right. but his human self made no choice. Correct. Okay, what's the significance of that? Why is that important for our salvation? If it's the shed blood payment, that's not really important. It's us. Yes. He needs to do something to humanity, the human beings. Uh, way of living to make it possible that we can have that thing, whatever he's going to accomplish. Okay, all right. He had to develop a perfect character. Oh, he had to develop a perfect character. So there are multiple elements that wouldn't have been achieved. Maybe we should identify what those elements were if he would have been killed as a baby. The elements to be achieved, first off, um, what we do notice is that the problem wasn't really a simple illegal payment because that could have happened of blood. But if he would have been killed as a baby, would we have evidence of Christ's character, of God's character revealed in the life of Christ? No. No, the evidence of God's character would not have been revealed over time, how he actually interacts and treats sinners one-on-one, face-to-face. Would we have exposed in the same fullness the malignity of Satan's character? No. No, we wouldn't have. Um, Would we have the evidence of a group of people behaviorally keeping the law becoming God's enemies and hating him. No. Which we saw in the Jews. They behaviorally did everything. Wanted to keep the Sabbath, but they hated healing on Sabbath. They hated grace. They hated the love of Christ. They, they were God's enemies, yet on the outside they looked like they were doing everything he told them to do. So we wouldn't have that evidence. So all this evidence and truth wouldn't have been real. Um, <clears throat> would we have the evidence of why sin leads to death? No, no, we wouldn't. No, Gethsemane. Uh, Gethsemane was, was, was part of that evidence. And on the cross, uh, God's actions involved there, uh, when Christ's own testimony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, all this evidence we wouldn't have. And then, would we have had, in, by the exercise of a human brain, the restoration of God's law of love into the human being. Did Christ love perfectly? 
Did he live God's law perfectly? By the exercise of his divine brain or his human brain? His human brain, because it says in James that God cannot be tempted by evil. But Christ was tempted, and he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. So his humanity was what was being tempted, and his humanity was what was saying no to temptation, and his humanity was what was laying his life down. Greater love is no man that he give his life for his friend. It was in his humanity that he was living God's law perfectly. And would we finally have developed a perfect human character without... If, de- if Christ would have been killed as an infant, no, there would not be one. And would Christ have destroyed in his human nature that, that selfish drive that tempts us to act in self-interest? And at the cross, he overcame that. You remember in Gethsemane, he anguished with powerful human emotions. And those human emotions tempted him to do what? Save himself. This is that temptation we all struggle with to act in self-interest. But Christ being tempted in every way just like we are, James tells us we are tempted by our own desires, had these desires to act to save self, but in no wise did those desires ever govern or take control. He chose to overcome with love. So in Christ, we have perfect revelation of God's character. We have revelation and exposing of Satan as a liar and a fraud. We have the perfect development of human character and the destruction of that infection that, that tempts us from within. All achieved through Christ. This is what was necessary. That's why in Hebrews 5 8 it says, Once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. And this is this is where Satan tried to obstruct. So Satan tried, tried to obstruct by closing the avenue, by getting everyone to turn their hearts against God. He tried to obstruct by destroying uh, the children of Israel the best that he could. He tried to destroy Christ as an infant, and then he tried to tempt Christ to act selfishly. You know, if, if you're the Son of God, turn this stone into bread, uh, throw yourself down off the temple, uh, dip out down, worship me. Uh, if you're the Son of God, come off the cross. Uh, you've saved others. Why don't you save yourself? All these temptations to act in self-interest, which would have obstructed the plan of salvation because if Christ would have done that, would have misrepresented God's character selfish and would have failed to heal and restore the law of love back into the human species. There'd be no remedy for sin. Okay, But Christ, Christ won every one of those victories all along the way. So the human race is now secure. Because of Jesus Christ, there's a human being that lives and will always live, a sinless human being for all eternity. And as long as we, you know, if we have one panda still alive, pandas are not extinct, are they? Because of Jesus Christ, the human race will live forever. Forever. The question now remembers, remains is how many other specimens will join him? And that is the offer he offers. He says, okay, I have achieved what you couldn't achieve. I have achieved the perfect character. I have achieved the remedy to to sin and sinfulness. I offer it freely to you. You can become, as Peter says, partaker of the divine nature. You can no longer either live, but Christ lives in me. We can have a new heart and mind. We can write the law on the heart and mind all through what Christ has achieved for us. So, Satan can no longer prevent Christ from achieving remedy and saving the race. Only thing he can prevent now is the number of humans that will take and partake of it. That's what he can prevent now. And so how he tries to do that, well, he tried to destroy the early church through persecution. That's the first attack, early early church through persecution, because if he destroys the early church through persecution, he still loses, the human race is still saved, but not as many people, not as many individuals will be saved. And yes, we've missed is the, the fact that Satan misrepresented God's character. And... Had people had a wrong 
Oui. Very next one. Thank you, Margaret. Yes, she's right on top of it. And so, and so the next one after he did that is he turned the minds away from the cross or twisted the meaning of all that Christ did so that God, so the cross now is no longer about Christ achieving victory in our behalf. The cross is about some type of a legal payment to an arbitrary God and we see God killing a son at the cross, God raining fire and wrath down on us. So he turns the cross into a pagan construct of an angry, wrathful God so that people worship Christ call themselves Christians, but instead have accepted a completely false idea of God and don't actually experience that transformation. Uh, on our Facebook page this morning, somebody, I don't know if anybody you check our Facebook page for our, our Sabbath class, but somebody put up there this morning that um, one of the countries in Africa, I can't remember which one she said, um, now uh, the supported by the the Christian church in that country are murdering homosexuals. Okay? Uh, supported by the Christian church in that country. And she said that her brother is homosexual and she's and he's wondering how can Christians do this? And of course the answer is they're not Christian. They're not Christian. You can call yourself Christian. But if you don't have a heart like Christ, you're not Christian. That's why Christ will say, you did all these things in my name, but in the end, I never knew you. Only those who are like Christ in the heart. And how did Christ treat the prostitute? Neither do I condemn you. This is exactly right. We don't, we don't cast stones. He is without sin. Throw the first stone. And, and who was the only one there without sin? And he didn't throw the stone. <laughs> yes. Christ in his discussions talked about how he associated with sinners and that he was accused of, you know, John came and he didn't eat and drink and they accused him and then he came and ate, ate and drank with sinners and, and he was accused. Yesterday on a call-in program on a religious station, it was mentioned by a family that they had a homosexual brother and they were no longer able to associate with him. And, really? Um, you know, because... They, because they're following the model of Christ, right? Yeah. And you see, but this is the idea of the twisting idea that Satan infects us with. This is how he still attacks the church by getting us to have all these false ideas about God, about God's principles, about God's standards, so that we then actually go out and misrepresent God. And people will see these ugly things. People who don't know Christ. Think about the impact in the world to Buddhists, to Hindu, to Muslims. Okay? When they see Christians acting in such a way that they are so cruel and hard-hearted to other people. They say, well, if that's what Christ is like, I don't want to be part of that. And we have to have a better witness. Monday's lesson. Um, Paul's day, talking about the Scriptures. In Paul's day, when Paul refers in script, when Paul is writing, and you're reading the New Testament, he refers to the Scriptures. What is Paul referring to? Do, do Christians today value the Old Testament as much as the New Testament in general? No, no, it's been demeaned in various ways. The most common that I've seen is two dispensations. The Old Testament is dispensation of law. New Testament is dispensation of grace. And so we read the New Testament because that's where we find grace. In the Old Testament, we find law. Is that a true representation? Is that a lie? No. That's a lie. How was, and this is what Paul is dealing with in Galatians. He says to the Galatians, and he deals and takes them to Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith. By faith. Okay? Abraham was saved by faith. Um, 
And, and he's telling them this is the same gospel of grace that we experience in the New Testament is the good news in the gospel of the Old Testament. Amen. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the whole point of that. Um, it asks at the bottom of the pink section on Monday, it says, do you at times find yourself thinking that one part of the Bible is more inspired than other parts? And it says, given Paul's statement in 2 Timothy 3.16, what's the danger of going down that path? <laughs> and that is uh, um, sometimes translated, all scripture is inspired of God and useful for teaching and correction and reproof and so forth. I think it's a bad translation. I think it should be this way. Um, all scripture inspired of God is useful mm-hmm. for correction. Because all scripture is not inspired of God. Uh, I didn't bring my Bible with me, but I have one at home that has the Apocrypha in it. And many people would open that up and consider that scripture. Call it scripture. Um, the Mormons have the Book of Mormon, and that's scripture. The, um, um, the Quran, many people consider scripture. There are many scriptures out there. Are all of them equally inspired? No. The Gospel of Judas, the recent uh, re- discovery. Are all of the Gospel of Thomas? Are all of these equally inspired scriptures? So I, I think that the Timothy translation is best translated, all scripture inspired of God is useful. So if it is inspired of God, then it's useful. Now, even in that inspiration, when you read the scripture, let's just take the 66 that most of us would agree are inspired of God. Does that mean everything in the 66 are equally um, useful? So in the garden when the serpent said, you will not surely die, was he telling the truth? When Job's friends came and said, boy, you must be a terrible sinner for God to punish you like this. Should we rely on that and use that as a quote? The scripture is, a, is, is much of scripture's history. It's inspired. God is giving us the history of the controversy between good and evil. And you have to use your judgment to say, okay, am I hearing the devil's argument here so I can get both sides of this picture and understand what's really going on? And do I want to quote a passage, uh, a proof text of scripture that has the devil or one of devil's agents talking? Yes. It's interesting that um, Paul does quote one of Job's friends and uses it as inspired, and yet that same quote may not be as helpful. Which one? Tell me. Um, All of sin and come short of the glory of God or something to that effect, and yet Job is described as being righteous. There's no not one. There's none, none righteous, no not one. And yet God declared Job to be righteous. Mm. Well, that's a good discussion, isn't it? So when there's no, no, was Paul saying there's none righteous, no, not one? Was he saying um, that there's none righteous without Christ? Or is he saying there, uh, there is um, none righteous with Christ? And was the statement of God talking about Job being righteous, Job is righteous on his own, separate from me? Or is his statement righteous because he's, come to unity and friendship with me. So yeah, those statements in and of themselves, okay, we have to then go, okay, um, how are they true or how are they not true? Yeah, so that, I, I love that. That's really good. Makes us think, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, Tuesday's lesson, top of the lesson. It says, why do you think Paul first appeals to Abraham uh, as he looks to the scriptures to validate the gospel message? And 
seems pretty straightforward to me. Why did he appeal to Abraham? Could it not be because the people who were causing all the confusion were Judaizers and they were introducing Jewish traditions and circumcision is one of the traditions and since that started with Abraham, why not start at the place the whole thing started? I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. That's why he appeals to Abraham. That's where, I mean, that, and he goes right back to their misunderstanding of what that was all about and he showed what? What did he show? Well, what was the Jewish, what was the Jewish position that Paul was opposing back then? What was their argument? What was their reasoning? What was their belief about circumcision and, and the righteousness of Abraham? Those, that, those that, were, that Paul was opposing, what was their belief? Well, their belief was Abraham, no, Abraham obeyed. Therefore, Abraham was righteous. That was their belief. Abraham did what he was supposed to do. He was circumcised. His obedience was righteousness. That's their belief. Yeah, the ones that Paul was opposing. Okay. Um, modern Christianity's position. Abraham believed, therefore, God credited him righteous, righteousness even though he wasn't. That's modern Christianity. Paul's position. Abraham trusted God with all his heart. Therefore, God recognized Abraham's heart had changed from one who didn't trust God to one who did trust God and therefore recognized him as righteous. Do you see the subtle differences amongst the three? I don't think any Christian buys the position that Paul posed that obedience makes righteousness. But this other one, this is that heavenly legalism that you guys were pointing out earlier, legal requirements, that when when Abraham believed in God, that God credits in a legal way righteousness, even even though Abraham is not righteous. What do you think about that? Can there be trust without obedience? Yes. Yes, there can. She says, explain. Explain. Well, because, because there can be trust without insight or understanding. I trust you, but I don't understand yet. For instance, Rahab. Rahab trusted God. Did she not? She put herself on God's side. It says she's in the hall of faith. That's, that's the hall of trust in the New Testament. Yet, what was her behavior? She lied. Thou shalt not bear false witness. She bore a false witness. No, they're not here. So her obedience, as far as performance goes, was not good. Why was it not good? Because her heart was wrong? No, she was righteous because her heart was right with God. But her understanding of God's methods, his principles, she didn't know anything yet. She didn't even know what that was supposed to look like. If she walks and journeys with God, I have every expectation that she ends up like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and would give her life to protect others and wouldn't do that. Yes? A thief on the cross had no chance to obey. Exactly. There's another example, thief on the cross. Yes. I would say another one would be um, in the Hall of Faith, um, locking on his name, who sacrificed his daughter. Um, in Jephthah. Jephthah in the Hall of Faith. Um, yes, uh, he, had, he had trust in God. And what did he do? First thing that comes out, I will sacrifice to you. His daughter runs out to meet him. And Scripture indicates that she took three months aside with her girlfriends and then he killed his daughter. Wow. Samson. Samson, yeah. Sometimes people believe it's true and, and trust that it's true, but find it too hard. Meaning? 
too hard to quit smoking because it's it, I trust it's true and do whatever they're being asked to do either by God or whomever um, even though they know it is correct yeah and that's a different that's a different in my experience different than what we're talking about here Rahab didn't find it too hard she didn't understand I mean what did she know about God I mean you're Rahab you're in Jericho you've heard the stories of what's happened in Egypt You've heard the, the Pharaoh's armies destroyed, the ten plagues walking through on dry ground. They're coming. You all, what do you know about God other than he's powerful and the Holy Spirit convicts you that he's true? So you make a decision. I'm either on his side or I'm on Jericho's side. She chooses to put herself on his side. That's an act of faith. That's why she's in the hall of faith. She trusts him. She puts himself in, But she doesn't know anything about his character yet. She doesn't know anything about his principles. She doesn't know anything about how he wants things done. That's why she, her performance isn't. But she's willing. She's willing. But she obeyed the spies who had told her, don't tell us where we are, tell them where you are. So although she didn't know God, she didn't know the Ten Commandments, she obeyed what the spies came for and okay. hid them from the officials. No, so you're right. In the, yeah, I think you're right. Um, when, when we look at obedience in the New Testament sense, obedience comes from the word hypoacue, which hypo means under, uh, and hypoacue means to listen. It means a humble willingness to listen and be led. There is no trust without a humble willingness to be listened and be led. So, yeah, I think you're right. Obedience without, without uh, agreement is not through obedience either. Good point. Good point. So, so obedience and trust and agreement, they all go together. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So, yes. You know, you say that she didn't know anything. We don't know that. She acted on faith, but she acted on something, some evidence to do what she did. We don't know what it is. It might have not been very much, but it was enough for her to act. Absolutely. So I don't think she was just blindly, you know, just saying, okay, I'll help you guys without any, any information. I, I didn't say that. I said that she had plenty of information. Oh, you said she had no evidence or you, she had no, she didn't know anything. You said or stuff like that. I, I didn't say anything. I, I said she had all the evidence of what he did in Egypt and the children of Israel crossing the dry ground and all that stuff, but not evidence of his character. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the question we're, we're exploring is this position of righteousness by faith. Um, third paragraph says, Whereas justification was a metaphor taken from the legal world, the word counted or reckoned is a metaphor drawn from the domain of business. It can, it can mean to credit or to place something to one's account. Not only is it used of Abraham in Galatians 3.6, but it occurs another 11 times in connection with the patriarch. Some Bible versions translate it as counted, reckoned, or imputed. And this is where this idea comes in modern Christianity that righteousness means that God counts you or looks at you or reckons or writes on your heavenly record, you're righteous even when you're not. And I'm going to tell you in some of my conferences that I've had with some leaders around this community, this, this is what they told me. Yes, God counts us righteous even though we're not. So he lies. So he lies, she says. That's what I said to them. So God is lying. Well, and they said, well, God's ways aren't our ways. You can't say that about God. And I say, well, you know, if you look at the word that's translated this is out of the, um, the uh, Greek lexicon, and the word translated um, reckoned or account or impute is logizomei. Uh, logizomei. And it, uh, pardon? Yeah. Yeah. 
And it, uh, it means to think nine times. It's translated nine times to think, impute eight times, reckon six times, count five times, account four times, suppose twice, reason once, number once. I mean, this is all the different ways this one word is translated into the English. And uh, it says, basically it says this, the word deals with reality. If I logizo my eye or reckon that my bank book has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. Otherwise, I am deceiving myself. The word refers to facts, not suppositions. So God cannot recognize us as righteous if we're not righteous. And this other thing is a fraud on Christianity. The real righteousness is about the heart. Our hearts have been changed. Abraham had a heart change. He was a heart of rebellion and distrust and selfishness that we were all born in at first birth. But he came to trust God, a change of heart. He wasn't perfect, but his heart was now right with God. See, a heart, right, righteous heart, right heart with God. That's what happened with Abraham. I've got a lot of quotes, and I'm not going to read them from Ellen White in here, where she says the same thing, that imputed righteousness um, is what is that we are transformed or changed by imputed righteousness. Uh, theologians like to break these words down and make two separate things. Imputed righteousness is something that's counted to us. Imparted righteousness is something we experience. And they make everything very convoluted. Ellen White doesn't go down that trail. She uses the words interchangeably, imputed. We are transformed by, changed by, recreated by, regenerated by the imputed righteousness of Christ. Wednesday's lesson. First paragraph says, In the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. That's a quote from Galatians 3.8. Paul writes that not only was the gospel preached to Abraham, but it was God who preached it, so it must have been the true gospel. But when did God preach to Abraham, preach the gospel to Abraham? Paul's quotation of Genesis 12.3 indicates that uh, he had in mind the covenant that God made with Abraham when Abraham was called. Thoughts about that? Any thoughts about that? I was thinking not only the covenant, but I was thinking Mount Moriah that the gospel was preached to Abraham at Mount Moriah. That's where his heart really came into empathy and harmony with God. That's when he understood what God was going to go through and what was going to happen to save mankind. That was the good news. God is so awesome. He loves us so much that he didn't, you know, for God so loved the world that he did not, you know, he, he, for, he did not hold back his son. He gave us his son. Second paragraph, it says, The basis of God's covenant with Abraham centered on God's promise to him. God says to Abraham four times, I will. God's promise to Abraham are amazing because they are completely one-sided. God does all the promising. Abraham's promise is nothing. This is the opposite of how we try to relate to God. We usually promise we will serve him if only he will do something for us in return. Notice that sentence. We'll come back to it. But that is legalism. God did not ask Abraham to promise anything but to accept his promise by faith. Of course, well, that was no easy task because Abraham had to learn to trust completely in God and not himself. The call of Abraham illustrates, therefore, the essence of the gospel, which is salvation by faith. It says, we usually promise we will serve him if only he will do something for us in return, but that is legalism. How about if we change the sentence and we read it this way? We usually say that Jesus promised to serve him if he'd only do something for us in return, but that is legalism. Would you you be uncomfortable if we put that in there? Jesus promised to serve him if he'd only do something for us in return. Is it any different? 
Do you understand the implication here? The first one, we promise to do something to God to get God to do something back for us. What we've done is that that's legalism, but know what? We have an older brother, Jesus. Jesus will now do something to God to get God to do something back to us. Is there any really significant difference in those two things when you look at God's response and what's necessary? Exactly. And this is what Christianity teaches. Jesus died to do something to God. He's up there pleading, my blood, my blood, Father. One large organization has Jesus, Mary, and all the saints pleading. And so the the orientation is such that Jesus stands as our substitute to take the penalty upon himself, and then he takes his blood to his Father to pay the penalty to his Father so the Father can now do something good for us. This is legalism. It's paganism, it's legalism. What does the Bible actually say? 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So we don't find Christ going to get God to get God to do something. In fact, we find that God was in Christ doing something to us. Or, for for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, God so loved he gave. Or, that's John 3.16, of course. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare a son, but gave him up. Howling not along with him, give us all things. So we find that the scripture is teaching that that Christ did not have to do something to get something good from God but that Christ was, in fact, God's envoy, ambassador, m- mode upon which he could do something good for man. And, and so here's two quotes from Ellen White that I love. First is Review and Herald, sep- September 2, 1890. As the Savior is lifted up before the people, they will see his humiliation, his self-denial, his self-sacrifice, his goodness, his tender compassion, his suffering to save fallen man, and will re- realize that the atonement of Christ was not the cause of God's love, but the result of that love. Jesus died because God loved the world. The channel, now get this, the channel had to be made whereby the love of God should be recognized by man and flow into the sinner's heart in perfect harmony with truth and justice. Okay? You don't have Christ doing something to get something from the Father. You have Christ doing something as the Father's vehicle, agency to achieve what was necessary to reach mankind and save mankind. Here's the next one. Letter. This is out of 7 Bible Commentary 464. The atonement of Christ is not a mere skillful way to get our sins pardoned. It is a divine remedy for the cure of of transgression and the restoration of spiritual health. It is the heaven-ordained means by which the righteousness of Christ may not only be upon us, but in our hearts and characters. You see, again, it's a, it's a, Christ was the means whereby God could take broken and sinful and sick humanity and cure them. He was the cure for our condition. It's a completely opposite idea than tradition has. Yes? But you still come to that condition on Friday, which is hard to explain. Uh, Hopefully we'll have time to get there. Okay. So let's go to Thursday's lesson. Thursday's lesson. Um, Galatians, somebody read Galatians 3, 10 through 14. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law was not based on faith. On the contrary, 
The man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. <clears throat> Anybody want to share what you understand that to mean? <laughs> this is a famous passage. Do we understand? Remember, we, we don't want to be like the Galatians who are mindless, who don't think. We want to think. What does it mean? Take a moment. Think about it. I'm going to sh I'll share with you my paraphrase of that same passage, and you can follow along. This is starting in verse 10. All who try to get well and experience unity with God by obser observing certain rituals or following a written script or obeying a set of rules are abandoned to their own fate. For it is written, Abandoned to your own choice is everyone who fails in the slightest to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is healed and set right with God by working to follow a set of rules because those set right with God live by trust. The written law, as applied by the Jews, is not based on trust. On the contrary, it is based on individual performance, on attempts to heal oneself. As it is written, the man who works to save himself will live in fear and only get worse. Christ saved us from where the law leaves us, diagnosed as terminal and abandoned to die. By being abandoned on the cross in order to restore us to trust and purge humanity from the infection of selfishness and death. For it is written, abandoned to die is everyone who is hung on a tree. He saved us from a futile and self-focused works system so that the blessings of love, life, and freedom given to Abraham and achieved through trust might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by trust we might receive the full enlightenment, renewal, and regeneration of heart and mind that comes by the Spirit. What do you think? What do you think of my use of the word abandon instead of cursed? Is there, is there an evidence base for that, or am I just making that up? Isn't death a curse? Well, if Christ was cursed for us on the tree, what was his own words about what he experienced on the tree? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, Romans 4.25, Paul says that God, because of our sins, God gave him up or abandoned him. So the curse of God is to let us go and be abandoned to the consequence of our choice. And if we understand that we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, we're born in a condition that if not changed, if not remedied, results in death, then those who don't accept Christ, those who try to make their own remedy, try to cure themselves, try to, try to uh, fix themselves in some way, will be abandoned to the ultimate outcome of that, and that is death. Only through trusting the remedy that Christ provides do we actually get a transformation, healing, and regeneration. But Christ was not really abandoned by God. He felt abandoned. He felt forsaken. God was on the cross just like Christ. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Because there are statements that say that, that God was crucified with the Son. 
But what, the, what God did do is God abandoned the son to reap the choice the son chose. And the son chose to go through the cross. And God did not intervene to stop it. That's correct. Okay? Now the wicked in the end are abandoned to reap the choice they choose. And they don't choose reconciliation with God. They choose to stay in selfishness. Christ didn't choose to go into selfishness. Christ chose. He says, no one can take my life. I will give it freely. So Christ's choice was, I will lay down my life freely. I give my life in love for others. Which was exercising his human brain, which destroyed that, that, that temptation to save his own life. He won't save his life. Those who seek to save their life will lose it, but those who give their life freely for my sake will find it. Christ. So therefore, God set free or abandoned Christ to the choice that he made. And he made the choice to love. That's why he rose again. The wicked in the end are also abandoned by God to the choice that they make. And their choice is to refuse love and to remain in selfishness. And so we find God doing both the same thing in both places, giving people the freedom to reap the choice that they make. But because there's two different choices being made, Christ's choice to love perfectly, the wicked to be selfish perfectly, they have two different outcomes. Yes? That's why the death of, of the wicked is not the same as the death that Jesus died. That's correct. Yes? There's still a little piece that's missing for me. Did God have to do that? I... That's the part. I don't understand the function. Would not, could Christ have died the death with God not abandoning him? If you know the story of Lazarus and the desire of ages, why did Jesus stay away from Lazarus? Okay. There was a reason that Jesus stayed away. It's in the book. It says it. She says to glorify God to show us power. No, there's another reason stated. If he would have been there, he never would have died. If Jesus would have been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. He's the source of life. If God would not have allowed the separation to happen between him and his son, then Christ wouldn't have died. That's what the sisters said. Yeah. Yes. One thing to remember about that, though, is that God is not going to force us to keep him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's not going to, he will give us up if we don't want him. He's that, not that's exactly right. Exactly. Us. Correct. Exactly, yes. I always felt, too, when the angels came to give him support in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was a little cheating there. <laughs> I just always felt like if he would do that for me when I'm wrestling with some of my bad choices or good choices to be, uh, the angels would show up. Well, wait, wait let, let, let's, let's, let's make this in proper context. Okay? The strength that was given was physiological strength to his body. That was what was given. So imagine somebody who's suffering in ICU with uh, metastatic cancer in chronic, miserable pain, and their body is overwhelmed and they're about to die because they're so, in such horrible suffering. And an angel shows up to give them a little extra life energy so they can sustain themselves in that pain a little longer. You like that? Like, I want that. Okay, that's what would happen there. If, if, and if you read Zyre of Ages, Ellen White says very explicitly that in no way was any of the suffering abated. But his humanity was so weak, it was, the suffering was so great that he couldn't sustain himself under it, and an angel gave him extra human energy, physiological strength, so that he wouldn't die yet because the lesson was not yet over. So think about a patient dying of terminal cancer. Does the doctor have to kill the non-compliant patient? No. no. Uh, does God inflict the death penalty, or is the death what happens to those who refuse God? Hmm. 
And then in the last paragraph it says, Paul introduces another metaphor to explain what God has done for us in Christ. The word redeem means to buy back. It was used as a ransom price paid to release hostages or as a price paid to free, free, free the slave. Because the wages of sin is death, the curse of failing to keep the law was often a death sentence. The ransom paid for your salvation was not insignificant. It cost God the life of his own son. Jesus ransomed us from the curse by becoming our sin bearer. He voluntarily took our curse upon himself and suffered on our behalf to pay to full, on our behalf the full penalty of sin. So we asked the question at the beginning of class, we're coming down to the end of class, what was the price paid for our salvation? We already determined it was not a price paid of blood to the devil. We've already determined that Jesus didn't pay, pay a blood price to his father or the law because the law is an expression of God's character. So there's no price paid there. So what is this price? What was it that was necessary? Well, it's a ransom price. What does a ransom do? What's its function? It's the price necessary to secure freedom to one who's held in bondage or hostage. Now, what is it that holds humanity in hostage? Two things, yes, two things. I heard it, I heard it around the room. One is the lies that, that we believe about God. So one of the ransom prices to pay was he had to reveal the truth to destroy the lies that set us free, but that's not enough. The other, you all said it, our carnal nature. We are held hostage by our own defective and carnal natures. And Christ came to destroy that carnal nature and provide a new humanity that we can then receive through faith. And then, listen to this. This is That I May Know Him, page 78. The Lord loves his people, and when they put their trust in him, depending wholly upon him, he strengthens them. He will live through them, giving them the inspiration of his sanctifying spirit, imparting to the soul a vital transfusion of himself. Transfusion. Think about a transfusion. A vital transfusion of himself. He acts through their faculties and causes them to choose his will and to act out their characters. With the Apostle Paul, they may say, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That I may know him, page 78. This is amazing. This is what we actually get, the life of Christ reproduced in our heart. That's a righteous man whose heart has been changed from one who distrusts God and acts selfishly to one who trusts God and loves others more than self. Yes? In modern medical terms, it might be a bone marrow transplant. A bone marrow transplant, yes. If we, if the a, progenitor cells. If a child has <laughs> cancer, sometimes mm-hmm. what is done is they give them a chemotherapy agent that kills all their living cells. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then they repopulate it with new cells that have a new population of progenitor cells. We die. Yes, we die to the old way. To the old way. And then God in, infuses a transfusion of bone marrow transplants for okay. us to give us new life. But would we let would we let somebody give us that transplant? Yeah, if Osama bin Laden was still alive, would you let him do it to you as an American? Okay, if you were a Jew, would you let um, Mengele do that to you if you had a choice? Okay? No, we only we only will surrender the heart for that type of change when we actually trust him. That's why the truth has to destroy the lies that we see his true character and we're one to trust, say, yes, I open my heart freely, and then the transformation comes. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such lengths, that you have sent your Son as your agency, as your conduit, as your vehicle to reveal the truth, to destroy the lies, to win us to trust, but more than that, 
to win a victory that we could never win for ourselves, to create a perfect humanity. And through the agency of your Spirit, we, we open our hearts now and ask that, that the Holy Spirit will take all that Christ achieved and reproduce it in us, that we can become partakers of your true nature and our hearts might be like yours. We pray in your holy name. Amen.